Well, good morning. Great to be with you. If you have your Bibles, turn in them with me to Psalm 56. And if you also want to be turning to uh, 1 Samuel 21, you can be there as well. So Psalm 56, and then 1 Samuel 21. It's a joy to be here. It's a joy to be back. I feel like every other year I get invited to come, which must mean it's enough time to forget the last time and say, we should get that guy from Phoenix Seminary to come back. So it's great to, great to be here. Uh, again, have loved this church. Uh, it, it is not something to take for granted to be in a faithful church that opens the Bible and preaches faithfully every week. Uh, they're, they're not in overabundance in Phoenix or the Southwest. And so we're going to try to help fix that along with faithful churches like you over the coming decades. Uh, but you are blessed to be in a church that uh, is pastored by a man who loves the Lord and who loves the Bible. Well, let me read with us, with you, Psalm 56 before we get started. David writes, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they've waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You've kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Let's pray. Father, we've sung some glorious truths this morning. We sang about that anchor which holds within the veil. And as the author of Hebrews says, we need that sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And that anchor that's behind the veil where Christ's blood shed on the altar makes us right with the Father. And Lord, we are so thankful to even sing about the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the tree. Not in part, but the whole. It's a glorious truth. We're going to talk about suffering and affliction today, Lord. But let us remember, when sins are paid for, when heaven is our reality, it's our future, what fear should we have in this place? What can man do to me when Christ has accomplished my salvation? So let us keep our eyes focused on Calvary, even this morning as we read this psalm. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever had one of those back-up-against-the-wall kind of moments? Those kind of moments where you say, if God does not show up, and he doesn't show up really quickly, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. Well, John had mentioned I've been at Phoenix Seminary now, actually for seven years, been president for three of those years. And one of those moments happened to me on my very first day as president. It's August 5th, 
2019, excited to lead the seminary to charge the hill, and my comptroller comes in, and she says, for the first time in our 32-year history at that point, we're going to miss payroll. Very first day, on the job. And I'm thinking, Lord, what did you get me into in this moment? What, what am I going to do? I don't even know the right donors to call. I don't know how we're going to close this gap. I don't know what this means for the institution, for the students, for the faculty, for the staff. Lord, I need you right now. There's nothing I can do in this moment. What, what are we going to do? And God let me sit in that place for a couple days. And then there was a donor who reached out who said, I've just gotten an inheritance and I want to give the school $300,000, which was almost exactly what we needed. But the Lord was good. We, we, we've been in a place now where that's not been true. The Lord has given us uh, over and abund abundance uh, what, what we could ever imagine. But I'm so thankful that I got to start my time in that place to watch God move, to have God say, this is my school, my seminary, my people. I will take care of them. But it was that back against that moment, back against the wall kind of moment. God, I need you to do something that I can't do. I know what it's like to have that sinking feeling in the soul, and maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you're at a place right now that you think if God does not show up in this circumstance, in this moment, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, for David, this was his life. Over and over and over again, David is running for his life. He's dodging spears. He's hiding in caves. And he often writes out of this place of pain. And Psalm 56 is one of those places. And here's what I want us to get. If we get one thing this morning, it's that God uses affliction to transform us if we acknowledge him in the process and act by faith. Or to say it maybe a bit more poetically, God tramples his grapes because he's making wine. And I'm not sure how baptistic this church is, but if wine is offensive, every time I say it, think on fermented grape juice. God, God tramples his grapes because he's making fine welches. Well, suffering and affliction are God's favorite tools to fashion us into godliness and to build trust. Well, I think in this psalm, we see this through a lot of psalms. I think it's pretty clear in this one especially that there's kind of a threefold movement of God uh, that David is experiencing here. And the first is affliction, and he's going to lament, and he's going to complain a little bit about the position he finds himself in. And then he turns immediately to acknowledgement of who God is, and then the knowledge of God will shape his thinking, and then to action where he encourages himself to act despite despair. Well, we don't always have a story that accompanies our psalms, but in this case, we do. Uh, we have these little, what we call superscriptions above it. I didn't read that when we started, but David says to the choir master, according to the dove of far off terebinths, a mictum of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. He tells us a little bit about his situation here. It's a miktim, which is probably some musical term that we don't know. I like to think it's some sort of Hebrew rap that David is composing. But he's talking about the story of when he had to run to Gath, and he was in the place of the Philistines, and things don't go well for David, and he writes this psalm out of it. So I want to lay the story as part of that first movement of the psalm, which is David's affliction. So if you're in 1 Samuel 21 as well. If you put a finger there, starting in verse 10, we read, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? And they 
And did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. They made marks on the doors and the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish uh, said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Let me ask you, how bad do things have to be for David to go to Gath? For David to go to the land of the Philistines. This, this is the Philistines' arch enemy. Let me, let me remind you of the whole story, right? David is the shepherd boy. He's out watching the flock. Samuel comes. He's going to anoint a king of Israel. And he goes down the line. It's like a Cinderella kind of story. This, the, the glass slipper doesn't quite fit any of the other sons. Then all of a sudden, we get to David. Well, David's just the, the youngest. He's the most insignificant of all the children. And Samuel tells him to call him. And here's David anointed as king. That's a pretty good thing as a teenage boy to hear that you're going to be the king of Israel. And then Goliath rolls into town, and he taunts the people of God. And David goes out and says, I think God wants me to slay Goliath. And, and then he does. And we don't get the rest of the story to be like, and David rode off into the sunset. As king, as a boy, the slayer of Goliath, that's not what happens. And I imagine as he is in Gath of all places, people think, wasn't it just like four chapters ago you killed our guy? Goliath was from Gath. I'm telling you, this, this is a crazy place for David to be, that he's going to stroll into Gath, the place of Goliath, and think that things are going to be better there than they were when he was fleeing from Saul. And he does crazy things. He goes mad. He goes insane. He changes behavior. He lets spit run down his beard. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is not David's finest hour. When we think about what David's going to accomplish in his life, these are the places where we don't see him as king and giant slayer. This display of insanity allows him to escape to the cave of Adullam. David was familiar with caves. David spends a lot of time in caves, and, and maybe that's where some of you are this morning. You're kind of in a cave of despair. And, and I find today, most people are not hiding in actual caves, and so I don't recommend in Phoenix in the summer, probably 140 degrees in those bad boys, but you're in a cave of your heart. You might be in a place this morning that you think the people even sitting next to me don't know where I'm at right now. I put on the front, things look okay. Instead of being the madman, maybe you're the happy person. But you're in this cave of the heart where no one sees how bad things are. Maybe, maybe you're in, in the place where you say, I'm not going to get burned one more time. I'm not going to let anybody close. I'm not going to trust anybody anymore. And maybe that's where you're at. Well, David goes on from here. He builds this army of misfits. We see in the text, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in the soul gathered to him. So that's all the best that David can do to muster a group at this point are the misfits around him and, and the ragamuffins collect to him. And that's got to be a lot of despair for a leader who says, I thought God called me and now the only army I can get together are these ragamuffins. Well, David goes from this cave to Mitzpah of Moab. He wanted his mom and dad taken care of until the text says, uh, till I know what God will do for me. So there's still that trust. We're going to see this in Psalm 56. And then David was on the move again. And Saul's not happy this whole time. Saul throws himself a little pity party and he says, why, why are people going out to David? Why, why are people helping David? I'm the king of Israel. I should be the one getting this. And that's kind of where our story's at, where David is writing this psalm in Psalm 56. 
David has a lot of time to do some soul-searching and to think through the situation he finds himself in. He's coming to, to terms. Why is God allowing me to suffer after he's promised me all these great things? So look back in Psalm 56, verses 1 and 2, and then 5 and 7. I'm going to pair these together because he's doing some like Hebrew parallelism here where he says bad things and good things and bad things and good things. I'm going to match the bad things and the good things. Verses 1 and 2. David writes, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. Then in verses 5 through 7, All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are evil against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they waited for my life. For their crime will they escape in wrath. Cast down the peoples, O God. It is unrelenting for David all day long. All their thoughts, as C.H. Burgeon said, sinners are, are gregarious creatures. Persecutors hunt in packs. These wolves of the church seldom come down upon us singly. There's this group gathering against David. David says, everybody's against me. We'll accept these misfits over here. But everybody else is against me. And for David, it came in the form of envy. Saul was jealous of him. You can imagine what this is like to be the king. The people are like, oh, you've killed thousands. David's killed tens of thousands. For a king to have worth and value, it's how many people they've slayed. Well, that may not be your affliction. I'm guessing you're not going around thinking people say I've only killed 1,000 instead of 10,000, or people are jealous of me. I, I find that affliction often comes in, comes in the forms of nouns. Affliction is a person, a place, or a thing that is kind of coming against you. It could be people. Uh, what has your soul worked up? Is it relational fallout? Maybe you're here this morning and you think the biggest affliction is coming from the person in the seat next to me. It's a spouse and the relationship is getting very tense. It's a wayward child that you cannot seem to bring back in. It's that person at work who's a thorn in your flesh. You drive into the parking lot, you see their car, and your anxiety goes through the roof. Maybe that's your affliction. Maybe it's a place. And by that, I mean the place in which you find yourself. Maybe it is work. Maybe it's the season that seems like it'll never end. And you're like, why does God have me in this place and in this time? And, and struggle after struggle comes. Maybe it's just a thing. It's a disease. It's chronic pain. It's financial. But something might have you in a place of affliction today. And you're crying out to God saying, why is this happening? And what I find in my life a lot of times is they seem to pile up at the same time. Life goes through these kind of smooth seasons, then all of a sudden everything's rocky, it's turbulence, it's challenging. I've had those moments where we just have to cry out. I've had those moments where I've said, God, you've got to relent. It's too much. Too much change. A number of years ago, in fact, right when we moved to Phoenix, Lauren and I went through three second trimester miscarriages. And you're moving 24 hours away from family, you're starting a new job, uh, there, there were some other challenges that were happening in that time. The finances weren't reaching. And you think, God, I, that's enough. Like, I, I trust you, but can you just pull it back just a little bit? Take, take one of these things off our heart. But God had us right where he wanted us in those moments, and it's hard to understand. David here being trampled all day long, not just being pursued, he's being trampled. Maybe some of you are actually here and thinking, man, my life's pretty easy. I don't know that affliction. I'm going to suggest that you're young, probably, and that life hasn't beat you up enough yet because it will happen. And I like what A.W. Tozer 
famously said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. God actually rises up storms of conflict and relationships at times in order to accomplish that deeper work in our character. We cannot love our enemies in our own strength. This is graduate level grace. Are you willing to enter the school? Are you willing to take the test? If you pass, you can expect to be elevated to a new level in the kingdom. For he brings us through these tests as preparation for greater use in the kingdom. You must pass the test first. Are you willing to let God use affliction in your life to build you into the kind of saint he wants? So what, what, what affliction has you in the cave? What affliction has you sidelined? Maybe there's even people here that the affliction is pushing you to the edge of unbelief. Can I trust him? Is he real? Is he there? Is he good? Well, no matter how deep the despair is, David never got there. He turned his eyes to God. So here's the affliction that he's feeling. What does David do? He acknowledges. So what I love most about David is that he professes truth even when he isn't feeling it. After each time he tells God what's going wrong, he flips it and acknowledges, but I trust in you. God, this is really hard. This is evil coming against me, but I trust you. And I'm scared, but I trust. Look what David says, verses three and four. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And then verses eight through 11. You have kept count of my tossings, Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What does David do when affliction comes? He cries out to God to tell God his pain, and then immediately he preaches truth to himself. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. And remember who this is. This is David, the killer of Goliath. This is David, the slayer of 10,000. If you're one of those manly men who I'm never afraid of anything, I'm tough. You're not tougher than David. Nobody in this room has killed more than 10,000 unless you're an Air Force pilot and drop bombs, which I guess we are by Luke Air Force Base. So it's possible that some of you have done that. My guess is you haven't. David's full of courage. And he's afraid. And that's an okay place to be, to tell God, I'm afraid right now. I don't know what's going to happen, but he's going to preach into his soul the truth of God. What do I know about him? How has he always come through for me in the past? I tell you what I dislike the most about my spiritual life is God comes through in an amazing way that I look and I'm like, that's a God thing. Only God could have done that. And the next time it happens, it's like, oh, Lord, where are you? I'll never get through this one. And then God brings you through it again. And then the next time, it's like you start from scratch. It's like you're not even kind of climbing up sometimes. We, we, we see this even in David's life, I feel like. He always starts in this place of utter despair before he remembers who God is and what God has done for him. Well, twice David makes the case that if we... Trust in God, what can man do to us? I, th I think Paul must have had Psalm 56 open when he's writing from Romans chapter 8. And if you have that text, well, you have it in your bulletin. We read it. Jerry did a great job reading it. I'm going to read it again because it's such a profound passage 
These are the things that you have to preach into your life. You've got to acknowledge who God is. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things, not many things, all things for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? Now, now, what chain did he just do? God called you, he predestined you, he called you, he justified you, he made you right with God. He will glorify you, which means you've got heaven forever. It's a sealed deal already. And then Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God has done these things, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If God did not spare his son, the most precious thing that God has. He sends his son to be crucified for sins. If God is willing to do that, your situation's way easier. It's, it's an argument from lesser to greater, or greater to lesser. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is crazy. Shall, shall tribulation separate us? And then the next verse, he's like, we are being killed. Those things don't seem to go together. The sheep of God are being killed, and yet we don't have to be afraid. Why? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All things work together for good because God is the one who's measuring it out for his people. That means no trial. No disease, no persecution, no mishandling of finance, no loss of job, no failure, no hardship, no courtroom in Gath, no cave in Israel is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. You might just think, but if I just do that sin one more time, I'm separated from the love of God in Christ. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ. But what if I lose my job? What if I lose my life? Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ. But don't think for a second that makes God aloof or, or, or suffering somehow less real. He knows your heartache. I think this is one of the most poignant verses in all of Scripture. Look with me in verse 8 of Psalm 56. You have kept count of my tossings. Some of you have trouble sleeping at night. Maybe last night anxiety's got your heart. You're like, maybe this time on my left side I'll sleep. And you don't, and it's 3 a.m., and you're still awake, full of anxiety. David had the tossings. And then this, put my tears in your bottle. God has seen every single tear you've ever shed. Whatever affliction has come, he knows them all. The God who has every hair on your head numbered is the God who has every tear you've cried bottled. 
Our God knows our most intimate details, and he's not far off. He's close. David says elsewhere in the Psalms, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and helps those who are crushed in spirit. That's why I love the Psalms. John told me you guys have been working through the Psalms. They are visceral. They are gut level. This is the human condition to see what God is doing. He knows. He knows your affliction. The question for us is, will we acknowledge him with trust like David did? God is working to process Christ-likeness and transformation do not come on beaches with umbrella drinks. It comes through suffering. It comes through the wine press. Do you trust him? Wherever you're at this morning, do you trust him to see you through it? If not, why? What keeps you from doubting his goodness? What keeps you from doubting his character? Because I think if we acknowledge him as trustworthy, it'll lead us to action. And that's the third thing we see here. So the, the affliction... David, for David, leads to acknowledgement of who God is, and he preaches that into his life, and then he's going to act, verse 12 and 13. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. You know what I think often happens to Christians when suffering comes, is that the saints of God get sucked into this vortex of despair. And then you circle and spiral downwards. And we throw ourselves a little bit of pity parties. We complain a lot. My life is worse than everybody else's life. My affliction is just a bit harder. I know, I know it's bad for David, but if God knew what my problem was, it would be that much worse, be that much harder. And pretty soon you're living in prolonged seasons of depression and anxiety. And David's been there. I think Psalm 42 is a great example of David in the absolute pit of depression. And what does he do? He preaches to himself. I'm going to restore my hope in who God is. He's not going to leave me in this place. And then he goes a step further to action. I'm going to do something. I wish the saints of God, when they're feeling those things, would strap up the boots and say, I trust in the Lord, and I'm going to keep walking faithfully. Every day with hope. We have hope that God will come through for us. Notice what he says, I'll perform my vow to you. I'll, I'll render my thank offering. God, I'm not just going to sit here and feel sorry for myself. Affliction has come, and you've allowed this situation somehow to work for my good, and I trust in you. And in the meantime, I'm going to do the ministry that you've called me to do. I'm going to fulfill my vow. I'm going to walk after you. Even though the world says it's crazy, I think the, the advice of a lot of the world is the advice of Job's wife when he's at the point of affliction and she says, curse God and die. That's your God? This is what you're going to hear from your coworkers. I know you go to Redeeming Grace. You Jesus follower, Bible reader, and your life's falling apart. All these things, that's your God? Curse God and die. But that's not what David does. That's not what Job does. And at base, I think the reason why he does that is verse 13, for you have delivered my soul from death. David saved. He's saved. He knows that God has delivered his soul from death. Listen, if the only reason you have to praise in the midst of your affliction is that God has rescued you through Christ from your sins and reconciled you to God, that heaven is going to be your eternal home, if that's all you have, you've got more reason to praise, more reason for gratitude than the person who does not know Christ, who's got everything in the world going for them and no affliction. You have got to cast your eyes on the horizon of heaven 
and get the perspective of eternity to say whatever God has me working through right now in affliction, he's going to work through it, and he's already done the hardest thing for me, which is to save me. If God has saved you, what can this world do to you? We need that perspective. And not only has God saved him, he's kept his feet from falling, as David says. This is a new day. Today's a new day. And God is clear. His mercies are new every morning. It's another day to say, God, I don't get it, but I'm going to trust and I'm going to follow. It will do you a world of good to get moving like David did. I know the affliction God's brought. I trust him. He's good. He's for me. Now, Lord, I'm going to fulfill my vow. I'm going to walk after you. Well, I said at the beginning that God is trampling his grapes because he's making welches. He's making his wine. It's interesting that David uses that verse about trampling, or the word trample twice in the first two verses. So for the great church father Augustine, as he's commenting on this passage, the idea of trampling triggers for him this illustration of grapes, and you'll know how this goes. Wine, wine is a very big deal around the world. A $340 billion enterprise. And what happens? These vine dressers, I mean, these people, I read a book on sommeliers one time, Lauren and I did, called Cork Dork. It's fascinating. <laughs> like, they don't brush their teeth because they don't want the toothpaste on their mouth. They clean their mouths with, with, with stones. They eat dirt to know so they can taste the grape and say, this was grown on the southern bank hill of some town in France. So they sound all smart and uppity. You know what I mean? <laughs> but they know it. They know their wine really well, which means the vine dressers take very good care of their grapes. But in order to do what they do, they've got to pluck the grape at some point, and they've got to put it in a vat, and they've got to crush it. Because a grape just being a grape isn't doing what it was meant to be. A grape is reaching its finest level of expression when it's trampled, and those juices come down, and they're fermented or unfermented, and they come into this wonderful thing of wine at the end. And Augustine says, a grape I was, wine I shall be. Folks, God is making wine of his servants. It's going to be through affliction. It's going to be acknowledging God through our affliction and trusting him and then acting. It's interesting to note that David went to Gath when he was running from Saul. And Gath means wine press. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my life as much as I pray for the, the saints who are gathered here today. That when affliction comes, I won't run. I won't grow in frustration. I'll trust. I'll submit. I'll see the good that you are doing in and through my life. And that, Lord, as saints together, we'll lift each other's burdens. We'll walk through the valleys together. We'll encourage one another as long as today is called today. That the Lord is good. He's for us. Because of what he's done for us in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.